on June 26th, 1999, my life changed forever. I stood at the front of a small little church in Johnstown, New York, a town that no one's ever heard of. (laughs) Stood there in my tuxedo, my palms sweating, my heart racing. When the doors of that church opened, she stepped forward. She was so beautiful, my bride, Bridget. My mind started to think as she walked down the aisle, you know, I had seen her a thousand times before, and all the time we were dating, and all the time we were engaged. But I had never seen her like this. Her beautiful white dress flowed as she walked down the aisle. And my mind raced ahead in the day, and I tried to think about the service and remember my lines. Um, I didn't mess up that day, but the priest called me Todd. (laughs) That was his bad. I started to think ahead to the reception about all the friends and family that we were going to see, all the fun that we were going to have. But then my mind went even further ahead, and I, I started thinking about, wow, this is, this is the beginning. This is where it all starts. Our, our life together begins here. And where are we going to live, and what am I going to do for a job, and are we going to have any kids? And I started thinking about how big this whole marriage thing was. But I stand before you today recognizing something that it took me a long time to get. And that as big as it felt when I stood there at the altar, it was much bigger than that. It was much, much more significant than that. In fact, it was even bigger than a dumb 23-year-old guy asking a 22-year-old girl that was just out of college. It was even bigger than the two of them coming together because marriage is an earthly picture of a heavenly truth. Marriage is an earthly picture of a heavenly truth. And that's what we're going to spend some time talking about today. My marriage is an earthly picture of a heavenly truth. Every marriage represented in this room today is an earthly picture of a heavenly truth. And it is important to God. Now, we all, we all care about marriage. No matter where we are, whether you're sitting here and you're too young to even be thinking about marriage, you're here with your parents, you're like, man, this doesn't mean anything to me. Whether you've been married 50 years whether you have one kid, two kid, three kids, whether you've been separated and you're on your second marriage, whether you're single and you have no desire to be married, you're a single adult and you just don't feel like that's what God has in store for you. No matter who you are, you care about marriage because none of us, none of us likes to read the divorce rate. None of us likes to walk our friend through how they're thrown in the towel and getting divorced. None of us likes to even think about 
children growing up in broken homes, spending part of the time with mom, part of the time with dad. None of us likes that. And marriage has gotten a lot of airtime recently, particularly with the Supreme Court, and we're going to talk about that a bit today. But it's even bigger than the socioeconomic political platforms that it has. It's bigger than that because it points to something about our faith. And if you sit here this morning and you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, marriage matters to you because marriage points to the single most important fact of our faith. Marriage points to a biblical truth. That biblical truth, the biblical truth on which our entire faith stands points to marriage. That's how significant it is. So it doesn't matter where you are on the marriage spectrum. It means something deeply to you or it should because it talks about our faith. And if you're here this morning and you would not call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're here with a friend, you're here trying out churches you don't know, you're wondering about life, you have lots of questions and haven't gotten any answers, thank you for being here, first off. But this is significant for you too, because you might think, what do Christians make such a big deal about this whole marriage thing for? Who cares? Well, today, hopefully, you'll get a little glimpse inside our head and be able to understand why it's so important to us. And maybe you'll even be able to walk away and say, I, I don't agree with that, but boy, there's, there's some nuggets here that would really help me in my marriage. Or I'm not married, I'm single, and, and boy, this would really help a friend of mine because even though I'm not married, I care about their marriage. Marriage is so significant to all of us because marriage paints a picture, albeit an imperfect picture, of a biblical truth. So what is that biblical truth? That biblical truth is in this book from beginning to end. The one thing that we're going to talk about, the one aspect of our faith that the entire faith hinges upon, everything is focused on this one truth. And it's from Genesis in the beginning all the way through the end. But we don't have time for all of that this morning, so we're just going to focus in on one particular area, and that is in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But while you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of background why this is important. Paul, arguably the greatest church planter, prophet, evangelist of the good news of Jesus Christ, is writing to a church in Ephesus, which was a profoundly significant city at the time. So Ephesus housed not only one of the seven wonders of the world, uh, the temple to Artemis, but it was also right along the trade routes. Um, it was located in what's current day Turkey. It was very significant. And at that time, you would even say that Ephesus was on par with Corinth and maybe even as important as Rome. So the fact that there was a church there of people that were talking about this guy named Jesus is really significant, and Paul wanted to encourage those people. So Paul writes them a letter from jail. He's now in jail, and he writes this letter to the Ephesians from jail. And his letter is short. It's only six chapters, so th this book is right in my wheelhouse. Real quick read. It's six chapters. The first three chapters of the book are all about what to believe. 
That's what to believe for that young church back in Ephesus, but it's also what to believe for us today. So this is really important for us. Paul is painting a picture of what our faith is all about. The last three chapters of the book are all about how to take what we believe and apply it. So how to do life based on what we just studied. So three parts, I'm sorry, two parts to the book, three chapters in each, and we're going to start with the what, because if marriage points to a heavenly truth, we need to look at what that heavenly truth is. And if that heavenly truth is so significant, we need to recognize it right out of the gate before we go back and talk about the relationship between it and marriage. So turn with me to the beginning of Ephesians, and I'm going to bring you up to speed. Paul starts off by talking to the church in Ephesus. He's telling them how thankful he is for them. He's talking about their their faith, how he's so proud of their faith. He's not writing this letter like he does some of his other letters to point out anything necessarily wrong in the church. He's just encouraging them and equipping them, telling them about the faith. And he does that for the first three chapters. But in chapter two, we have a summary, one of a few summaries of this big nugget, this big theological truth that's the foundation for everything. So we start at the beginning of chapter two in verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Let me start out with the obvious. Paul was not writing to someone that was dead. That's awkward and weird. You don't write letters to somebody that's dead. So these people were very much alive, but he's saying that they were dead. And it wasn't that they were dead and they came back alive. He's saying they were dead, a different kind of dead. Not physically dead, but spiritually dead. Now, if we really wanted to understand this, we had to get inside of the mind of someone that was in Ephesus that grew up as a Jew, because a Jew would have looked back to Genesis and knew exactly what was meant by being spiritually dead. And I so much appreciate Chris Anderson last week pointing back to those beginning chapters of Genesis and building off of that, because Genesis shed so much on light on where the letters were at that time that were being written, but also for us today. So you don't have to turn back to Genesis, but I'm going to bring you up to speed. Genesis 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3, very, very important. Genesis 1, Ed prayed and talked about this. God created everything with his spoken word. We have the creation account, grand finale of creation, man and woman. Genesis 2, we hear about God resting on the seventh day. We learn about the Garden of Eden where the first man and woman lived, Adam and Eve. We have marriage defined Two men, a man and a woman, shall come together in marriage, and the two shall become one flesh. That's how God defines marriage. That's how we at Reston Bible Church define marriage. We have the institution of marriage created. Chapter 3, we have Adam and Eve deciding that it wasn't good enough. You see, God created Adam and Eve to be in perfect harmony with himself, perfect union, perfect fellowship with him. They walked with God. They talked with God. They knew him intimately. But Adam and Eve decided that wasn't enough. They wanted more. So they make the choice to try to be like God because they had heard that if they ate the fruit of the forbidden tree, that they would become like God. So they took it and ate it and disobeyed God's one command to them. And at that very moment, when they choose to turn away from God, began a cycle of turning away from God that has been fulfilled for thousands of years and culminates today with you and with me. 
We make choices in our lives that separate us from a holy and loving God. That's a huge problem that we need to understand as we begin to look at Ephesians. That left to our own devices, we turn away from God. He loves us and we don't love him back. We'd rather love ourselves and take care of number one. So Paul starts off, back to Ephesians, by saying you were dead in your trespasses and sin. In other words, you, church in Ephesus, and us today, church at Rest and Bible, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. You were separated from God. Then he goes on, skip a few lines down, chapter 2, verse 4, but God, that's a huge statement. There was a problem. You were separated from God, but God stepped in because you couldn't do anything about it, but God did. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen. God knew that there was a problem, that man was separated from himself, but he wants so desperately to be in fellowship with you that he made a way, and that way is through Jesus Christ. We learn that Christ lived a perfect life. He knew no sin, but yet he went to the cross and was punished. Why, if he didn't do anything? For us. He took on the punishment for us. So that by trusting in his actions, what he has done, we now can be in fellowship with God once again. Restored, redeemed with God. That, that is the good, awesome, jaw-dropping, oh my goodness, I cannot believe it's too good to be true news. We call it the gospel. So when we say that marriage is a picture of, an earthly picture of a heavenly truth, we know that marriage is an imperfect earthly picture of a perfect heavenly truth. In other words, the gospel. Jesus did not leave us in the state that we are in. Now we have the what, we move on to the how. And Lord, would you give us strength to understand the how, to accept the how, and to do it well for your glory. Paul moves on. He starts the transition in chapter four. Talks about how we're one in Christ. How this message is going to go out through the church. How we are to be in unity with one another. Chapter five, he says, to begin to summarize, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up. Again, a summary of that gospel. We are to love as Christ loved. Skip down, chapter five. After Paul gives us a list of things that we should avoid, he says, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He reminds us that in all things, we are supposed to give thanks for that which we do not deserve, the life that we have, any good fortune that we have, his provision for us. Give thanks in all things to God because he is the provider of all things. But then give thanks, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What Paul is saying is we are all called to submit in some way. Everyone in that church in Ephesus, everyone sitting here today, we are all called to submit. And he goes on to say we're all called to submit to God. 
It's a vertical relationship. We're supposed to submit to God. But how we submit to others here on earth is a picture of how we should be submitting to God. And he's reminding that everyone needs to submit. I have people that I have submit to. You have people. In fact, no matter who we are, if we walked out of this church today, screeched our tires, screeched, sorry, our tires, blew through a red light, somebody pulled us over, we would need to submit to the authority that pulled us over. Because God has put that authority over us. We all need to submit. Now, Paul could have stopped right there. He could have said, we're good. You guys submit, go on. And he could have skipped ahead. He could have skipped right to Ephesians chapter 6, gotten into the armor of God, started to talk about that. But he didn't. Because he knew, and God knew, that that church back then, and this church today, probably doesn't understand what it really means to submit. So he goes on to share three examples. And he says that all three of these examples, implies that all three of these examples should be resonating with you because all three of them are about the home. Now, even if you don't have your own home today, you, you grew up in one, you've lived in one at some point, you understand kind of how the home works. And Paul says, I'm going to give you three crystal clear examples of what submission looks like because we all have to submit. For example, wives and husbands, parents and children, slaves and masters. Well, we're only going to talk about the first one today, the relationship between a husband and a wife. But he gives you three more. Ephesians is an awesome book. Pick up this book. Read Ephesians. Take the time to do it. It's powerful. It's short. No matter who you are, you can read it. But we're just going to look at one of those examples today. Husbands and wives. Verse 22. Wives. Let me just try to get it out. Wives, submit to your own husbands. We did it. Amen. We're done. No. So what exactly does this mean? It's built on the foundation of we all have to submit to someone. Paul is saying within the home, there is an organizational structure. Organization needs a flow of authority because organizations without authority flounder and fail. So just like any organization, the home needs a structure. So God sets it up here and he's giving an example with wives submit to your own husbands. So let's break down this verse because immediately there's some concerns here. And if you've had trouble with this verse, you may have been one of those people that have kind of taken this verse, some chunks of phrases from elsewhere in the Bible, some of your own thoughts, what you read in a magazine, and you kind of clued it all together. And when I read that, what you heard was thy worthless group of earth dwellers. With no value, obey thy master and cover thy head. Just put a bunch of stuff together. And that's not at all what this verse says. In fact, that's not at all what's said anywhere in the Bible. So we need to understand what is said here if we're going to apply God's word to our lives. So let's break down this verse first. Starting off, wives. This is not a call to all women. This is a call to those of you that call yourself wives to begin. Secondly, submit. Submit means to willingly 
put yourself under the authority of someone. Willingly put yourself under the authority. But what some of you read into this is that it's about equality. This is not at all a statement about equality. I was trying to put together the words to tell you how I felt, but then I came across this quote. I just had to share it with you. This is by Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem is an author, a theologian, arguably one of the greatest theologians of our current day. And Wayne Grudem puts it this way. The Bible thus corrects the errors of male dominance and male superiority that have come as a result of sin and that have been seen in nearly all cultures in the history of the world. Wherever men are thought to be better than women, wherever husbands act as selfish dictators, wherever wives are forbidden to have their own jobs outside of the home, or to vote, or to own property, or to be educated, wherever women are treated as inferior, wherever there is abuse or violence against women, or rape, or female infanticide, or polygamy, or harems, the biblical truth of equality in the image of God is being denied. To all societies and cultures, when these occur, these things occur, we must proclaim that the very first page of God's word bears a fundamental and irrefutable witness against these evils. Amen? It's not a question of equality. Man and woman were created together, equally, They both bear the image of God. One is not a better image bearer than the other. That's ridiculous. Man and woman both bear the image of a loving, holy, and perfect God. Paul's emphatic about this. Forget about Genesis and right at the beginning, if you want to look in the New Testament, Paul says in Galatians, there's no, there's no Jew or Gentile. There's no slave or free. There's no man or woman in Christ Jesus. We are one in Christ Jesus. It's not about equality, but it is about roles. Equal value, different roles within the home. Bridget is a, a much better wife than I am. So I figured she, uh, she knew a lot about it. So I decided to ask my bride because I thought it would be, be helpful for me to, uh, to share with you her thoughts on the matter. So I said, can you just send me a few thoughts on what it means for a wife to submit to a husband? So she sent me this. It's um, a step-by-step guide to biblical submission for wives by Bridget Getz, volume one. <laughs> no, seriously, she, she sent me a lot of thoughts. And while I'm on the topic, as I was even preparing for this message, as a man, I know that there are women far wiser than me in these areas. And I consult them and ask them, you know, help me, teach me so that I can be prepared to de- deliver this message in a way that glorifies God. Bridget summarized, and she said this. Submission is much, all caps, underlined, bold. Submission is much more than an act of obedience. It is a heart direction. It is a heart disposition. Submitting to one's husband is ultimately submitting to God through your husband. Marriage is a picture of the gospel how we act in marriage can be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And how a wife submits 
is a picture of how we are all to submit to our heavenly authority, and that is God. Now, we might just read, submit to your own husbands and and stop there, or want to stop there, but we can't because the verse continues. Wives, submit to your own husbands, your husbands, nobody else's, as to the Lord. That's the point that we're getting at. It's as to the Lord. Paul goes on, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Husbands, hold on tight. I'll get to you in a minute. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In everything, meaning in everything that does not contradict God's word. So what do we mean by this? We mean that there should be a relationship between a husband and a wife in marriage such that the man values the opinion and strives to love his wife. Again, we'll get to more of that in a minute. And out of that love and valuing, the woman submits to his authority, willingly, to his leadership, because that's the way that God designed it. Now, there's a challenge, though. Submission is not natural to women. They are not submission-oriented. Some of the guys are like, yeah, I know. I know. But no, I'm serious. Not only have I observed it in my own marriage, but even beyond that, I know that it's true because the Bible says it's true. The importance of that Genesis account is that there was a consequence to the fall. Not only did it break the relationship between man and God, but God then had to issue a curse, a consequence to those that infract the infraction, those that were a part of that, Adam and Eve. And to the woman, he says two things. He said, you're going to have pain in childbirth. I've been there seven times. Oh yeah. If you're about to have a baby, I'm sure yours will be fine. (laughs) There's pain in childbirth. And then he says, you will have trouble. You will desire your husband. Now, this doesn't mean desire sexually. It means you'll desire his position. You will desire the position of your husband. So women, wives, it is in you with your husband to desire his position because the Bible says so. Submission is something that we cannot do on our own. I can't submit to God on my own. I need his empowering, his equipping to do it. I need to be humbled and able to be able to do that. And wives, you need the strength and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to be able to do this well. Our marriages are imperfect pictures, imperfect pictures of heavenly truth. But the truth is, your submission to your husband is a picture of the submission of the church to Christ. Let's carry on. Now we move on to the husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's start right at the beginning. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, those married again, love. Oh boy. What does that mean? Is that some romantic, mushy, gushy love? I mean, come on. I love her. I told her 20 years ago, and I said, if things change, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> Nothing's changed, and here I am. Piece of cake, right? 
But we have to look beyond that because Paul paints a picture of what love is. If we flip over, which you don't have to do, I'll turn for you, over to Corinthians chapter 13, he paints a picture of what love is. Love is patient, kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it doesn't insist on its own way, it is not irritable, resentful. Goes on with a laundry list of things to do. And we start to think, oh boy, that's a lot to do if I'm a husband to my wife, but okay, I'll get it done by noon. I'm good. I can do this whole, I can do this whole love thing. Piece of cake. But the verse continues. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Verses 26 and 27 are pointing to the relationship between Christ and the church, what Christ has done for the church. But it lets us know that that is what we're striving for in our relationship with our wives, husbands. That is the call. But there's a challenge too. Love is not natural for us. We are not love oriented. The wives are like, amen. I know my husband is not love oriented. We are mission oriented as men. I can observe it in my own life, but I don't have to look far because it's also in Genesis three. The curse that falls on man because of the fall is that a man will struggle with the toil of the field, the work of the field. We focus on work. Work steals the degree to which we can love our wives. Some of us, just in the amount of time that we spend there, the amount of time that we think about it, we might come home at the end of the night, but we are not there. We are physically there. We are not mentally there. We are attached to this device. We're checking our email. We just can't let go. Work consumes us, and it's really hard to be a good husband, to be a good father, to be a good Christian when our world is wrapped around our work. And even if it's not work itself, maybe we hate our jobs. That desire for work, not the thing, the exact job at name your company, but the desire for accomplishment consumes us. We fill ourselves with things that can be measured, things that we can find success with, even if it's just getting something done around the house while ignoring everything else. We gravitate towards things that we can hang on the wall, trophies, diplomas. That's our deep-rooted desire, and I know it because I feel it, and I know it because God told me that about me and about you. The only way that we can love our wives is by following the example of the gospel. Paul goes on, he continues, and he tells us something else. Now, you'll note here that the ladies were wrapped up in three verses. Guys, take seven. I'm just saying. So obviously, it's taken us a little bit of time to get this. But verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of 
of his body. We're so naturally selfish. I'm so naturally selfish. I think about me first thing in the morning. I get out of bed and I think, did I get enough sleep? Maybe I should go back for a few more minutes. What should I eat today? Where am I going to go today? What am I going to do today? What should I eat today? I think about food a lot. (laughs) I'm always thinking about me. It's my natural position. And it's really hard to love my bride, as I'm called to do, when I'm so busy loving me and thinking about me and my world. But God calls us to love him first, our bride second, our children if we should have them third, and then everyone else after that. But when we're so driven to think about the things that we're going to do, it's hard to focus on the priorities that he has put before us. When Bridget and I were newly married, uh, we went to a wedding together. I think it was before we even had any kids, and we were very much in the honeymoon stage of googly eyes and all of that. And we went to a wedding, and when we were at this wedding, we were sitting at our table, and we see out on the dance floor this older couple, and they were older. I mean, they were probably in their 60s, 70s, gray hair and all that. They are dancing up a storm, and they are holding hands. They, one would go get a drink for the other one. They were uh, kissing each other, and it was, it was beautiful. And Bridget and I thought, that's amazing. So we went over later in the night, and we asked them. We said, you know, you guys are an older couple, and you're so much in love, and that's, we're newly married, and that's how we want to be. Well, what, what can we do? What's the secret? And this cute little woman said to me, he puts me first and thinks about my needs. And because he's always thinking about me, I don't have to think about myself. All I think about is how I can serve him. Isn't that a beautiful picture? No, no, you, I want to focus on you. No, I want to focus on you. No, I I, want to serve you. What can I do for you? How can I serve you? How can I encourage you? Do you need me to just listen and stop moving for once? What can I do to love you and encourage you? The only way to do this is with the gospel. The only way to do it is with the power of Christ. Paul continues on. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He repeats, quotes, that out of Genesis 3, his definition of marriage, to remind the husband that they are going to become one flesh. And then he goes on to say this, and it's pretty perplexing. This mystery is profound. What mystery? Marriage. He calls it a mystery. Why is it a mystery? Because it's hard to understand I mean, two becoming one, I've been going at it 15 years and I can't even articulate for you what that means. I just know that Bridget's joy is my joy. Bridget's pain is my pain. As two become one, you become knit together in such a way that you become one in mind and in spirit. 
I can't explain it to you any more than that. I can give you examples, but I can't tell you about it. And that's because it's a mystery. And if God says through Paul that it's a mystery, I trust that it is. The Proverbs tell us that there's lots of confusing things, but nothing's more confusing than the way of a man with a woman. Amen. I don't understand it. I can't even explain it, but I do know that my marriage is a mystery. And the fact that we are drawing closer now and becoming more one is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And that's our point. And that's what Paul goes on to say in the remainder of verse 32. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage points to the gospel. The gospel points to marriage. Verse 33, he concludes. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that he respects her husband. It's almost as if Paul goes out of his way right here to say, wives, you go do your thing. Husbands, you go do your thing. And my desire as you walk away this morning is that you would feel that way. Don't walk away saying, boy, I sure am glad she heard that one this morning. Preach it, pastor. Boy, I sure am glad that he was here. He needed that. Because this is a message to you because marriage is a representation between Christ and the church. But each of those calls to submit and to love are to wives and husbands. And it's representative of the vertical relationship between you and God. Have you ever thought about it that way? Marriage is an imperfect heaven, earthly picture of a perfect heavenly truth. That's why it's so important to all of us. Why is it important collectively to us as a church? A few months ago, back in January, Dave Harvey, an author and a pastor from down in Florida, great guy, came and spoke at our marriage conference. And I loved how he put it. He said this, marriage is embedded in the culture as a gospel testimony that is always making statements. The question is whether it's a good statement or a bad one. Your marriage is a gospel testimony if you're married here today. And it's always talking. The question is, what is it saying? Because those around you are paying attention. Marriage is an earthly picture of a heavenly truth. And no matter where you are on the spectrum of marriage here today, it makes a difference to you because you care about marriages. And if you're married and you're sitting here today, I ask you, what is your marriage saying? What kind of story is it telling? Marriage is a parable a living, breathing parable. What is your parable saying about the gospel? Could it be that your wife experiences the gospel in a very physical, tangible way by how you treat her? Is it, is it possible that your husband would experience the gospel in a real way by how you treat him? Is it possible that your children would see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of his undeniable love for us, the degree of his sacrifice for us through your marriage 
Is it possible that your children would see that? Is it possible that you would be walking down the street in your community, at your workplace, and by your speech and by your action, someone would say, it's bigger than that guy, that gal's marriage. Is that possible? Is it possible that marriage truly does point to the gospel in such a way that it would draw someone to the gospel? I think it is. And that should means something to all of us. Marriages are important. It's significant. Now, if you're married and you're sitting here today, you have an opportunity to do that. If you're single and you're sitting here today, now you understand what marriage is all about. And you might not be called to it. I don't know. You might be called to singleness, just like Paul was called to singleness. But you are now equipped to be a vessel through which you can encourage and help the married couples around you. I close my eyes and I think about my marriage. I think, could it be that we're like that little old couple 20, 30, 40 years from now? Bridget and I dancing on the dance floor. Could it be that our children would see the love of Christ as demonstrated through our love for one another? Could it be that a world around us would get a testimony of the gospel through our actions toward one another? I think about Reston Bible Church. My great desire is for this church to be a beacon for marriages in this area. People are hurting. Some people in this room are hurting in their marriages. Could we as a church encourage and equip? Could we model the gospel as a church within our marriages? Could we change the world around us with our marriages? Some of you share my desire. Those weren't actors and actresses models. Though some of them look like it at the beginning. Those are couples here in this church that are walking with me that want to be that couple in 40 years. What kind of story would that tell to the community around us? I have a crazy dream. I have this crazy dream that we would be that beacon. I have this crazy dream that there would be no divorce among my brothers and sisters in Christ in this church. I know it's wild, but it's a God-sized dream. Only God is going to be able to do that. We are not going to change the minds of the people in Washington, D.C. about marriage. But we may just change the hearts of the people in Washington, D.C. about marriage. And through that, point to the heavenly truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I praise you and thank you for the privilege of gathering this morning and looking at the single most important truth of our faith, Lord. Father, you loved mankind, us in this room, so much that you would not let us be separated from you for eternity. 
And that's why you sent your son. Father, if anyone recognized that for the first time this morning, Lord, my prayer is that they would submit to you now, trust you as Savior. What a beautiful story that would be. But Father, as we go forward, Lord, for those of us that are married, would you help us? Would you strengthen us and equip us so that our marriages can tell a story, that they can be a parable about your love for us? Father, for those of us that may be single sitting here, um, Father, would you strengthen us so that we can equip our brothers and sisters in Christ because marriage is so important not just because of the wedding day, not just because of a man and woman being together, but it's important because it paints a picture of you. Father, allow us to do that for your glory and honor and strengthen us. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.